Welcome to Sleepy Time Travels. Well, we've come this far. Why not continue our tour of the founders of New Thought? Prentice Mulford, Horatio Dresser, and Eleanor Moody have all laid out their vision and experience of man as the ultimate creator, using his imagination to create via the universal law. In this episode, we'll hear selections from A. Leighton Allen's The Message of New Thought and the Basis for the Law of Attraction. His is one of the clearest statements yet that when we attain the proper focus, clarity, and integrity of thought, we will manifest what we imagine. My name is Russell Stamets. I read old books. Some people like to fall asleep while I do. The topics of the public domain books I choose to narrate and produce range from Eastern religion and philosophy to Russian folktales. If you'd like to hear more of the audiobooks I sample on the podcast, or check out the rest of my catalog, search Russell Stamets on Audible or iTunes. I'll include links to the audiobooks and the Kindle and print editions in the episode description. If this podcast is something you enjoy listening to, besides buying the books, you can support me by rating the podcast following, or subscribing. Now, it's time to get comfortable. Settle back, relax, and listen. Mind is the master power that molds and makes. And man is mind, and evermore he takes the tool of thought, and shaping what he wills, brings forth a thousand joys, a thousand ills. He thinks in secret, and it comes to pass. Environment is but his looking-glass. James Allen Nature does not thrust powers and accomplishments upon us. In her infinite wisdom, she has left us a work to perform. Endowed by nature with incipient powers, it was left to man to develop them or not, as he should determine. Wisely was it ordained when man was created, that he should eat his bread by the sweat of his brow. Labor has been the propelling force in man's progress and advancement in civilization. Without it, he would have placed no value on that which satisfies his wants and ministers to his comforts. We value that most which we accomplish by our own efforts, either physical or mental. Diamonds are found only in the dark places of the earth. Truths are found only in the depths of thought, says Victor Hugo. That we may have a due appreciation of the forces and powers within us, we must learn to unfold and develop them for ourselves. This we can do only by the exercise of our own thought and willpower. If we wish mental power, we can have it only as we exercise the faculties of the mind and thus develop and educate them for the work that devolves upon us. If we wish character, thought is the key to its development. If we desire accomplishment along any chosen line, we must put forth the thought and effort necessary to produce the sought-for results. If we wish to utilize the subjective forces within, only as we properly train the objective mind to play upon them and impress its thought upon them can we expect valuable or important effects. Cause and effect are written everywhere in the universe. The law of compensation is ever before our eyes. If we would evade it, it steps in our pathway to block our progress. We must ever pay the price. Wherever there is an effect, there was first a cause. Everything in the universe that we observe, all the varied and marvelous manifestations in nature, all that takes place in men's lives, proclaim the truth and universality of this law. From elections to worlds keeping their orbits through infinite space, all things animate and inanimate must obey the positive mandates of this law. This law is as inexorable, unerring, and constant in the mental and spiritual planes 
as in the physical universe. It is never suspended, never varies. It is fixed and eternal. The same law that the planets obey, that causes the seed to germinate and grow, that brings the recurring seasons with equal precision, regulates and controls every thought sent forth from the human mind. Let us consider well what thoughts we entertain and how we shall send them forth, for they are causes and will in good time come into expression in our own lives. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. This wondrous truth is old, and it is new. Its application is new to us every moment of our lives. Its real significance and true meaning were never known until the discovery of modern psychology. Until we have learned something of the nature of subconscious mind, we can have but a faint understanding of the import of this golden proverb. We must first realize that the subconscious mind has control of the functions and forces of the body, that it is the great mental and spiritual storehouse of man, that it is amenable to every suggestion of the objective or conscious mind, that the conscious mind acts, the subconscious reacts, the conscious mind produces the impression, the subconscious mind produces the expression, the conscious mind determines what is to be done, the subconscious supplies the mental material and necessary power, before we can understand its full meaning and significance. Translated into modern language, we would say that as man thinks deeply and reaches down into the subconscious mind and impresses it with his thoughts, the subconscious mind will respond according to the nature of the thought and impression. Plato said, Thinking is the talking of the soul with itself. Thought is dynamic. Thoughts are not things, but the forces back of things, the creators of things. Thought is power. Thought is force. Thought is cause. Our todays are the results of our past thinking. Our tomorrows the result of our present thinking. We have been our own mental parents, and we shall be our own mental children. All that a man does and brings to pass is the vesture of thought. There is a correspondence between thought and deeds, Thoughts and Circumstances Thoughts produce conditions in our physical bodies, in our lives and circumstances, according to the character or those we harbor. Emerson says, The key to every man is his thought. Sturdy and defying though he look, he has a helm which he obeys, which is the idea after which all his facts are classified. He can only be reformed by showing him a new idea which commands his own. Every thought accompanied with deep feeling or impressed upon the subconscious mind produces chemical changes and effects upon the body. Thoughts of fear and anxiety disturb the functions of the body and bring weakness and disease. Pleasant, agreeable, and joyful thoughts bring health, strength, and poise. The pleasantest things in the world are pleasant thoughts, and the greatest art in life is to have as many of them as possible. The laws of mind are fixed, absolute, and eternal. We are the results of the sum total of our thinking. Thoughts are revealed in our faces and manifested in our lives. As we glance in the mirror, we see the reflection of our thoughts. Men foolishly believe their thoughts are their own and that they entertain them in secret and keep them to themselves. Thoughts are not secrets. They are not their own. Every thought is registered in the archives of the soul. Thought pencils the lines in the brow. Thought plows furrows in the cheek. Thoughts reveal their character in the expression of the eye. The face is the mirror, reflecting the mind and thought of its possessor. Walt Whitman says, Sauntering the pavement or riding the country road, lo, such faces, faces of friendship, precision, caution, suavity, ideality, 
the spiritual prescient face. They always welcome common benevolent face. The sacred faces of infants, the illuminated face of the mother of many children, the face of an amour, the face of veneration, the face withdrawn of its good and bad, the castrated face. This now is too lamentable a face for man, some abject louse asking leave to be cringing for it. This face is a haze more chill than the Arctic sea, its sleepy and wobbling icebergs crunch as they go, the melodious character of the earth, the finis beyond which philosophy cannot go and does not wish to go, the justified mother of men. If we but observe, we too can see the faces Whitman saw as we saunter through the highways and byways of life. Similar faces appear in every street and thoroughfare. Whitman looked through the eyes of the seer. He saw beyond the faces. He recognized the silent causes there registered. He understood. We, too, can look beyond the expression to the cause and understand they were all wrought in the forge of thought. We can almost feel the calculating thought of the man with a face, a haze more chill than the Arctic sea. We can see a life of unselfish love back of the face of the justified mother of men. The character of thought betrays itself not only in the faces of men, but in their lives and characters as well. Thought determines character. Thought is character. James Allen has well said, Think good thoughts, and they will quickly become actualized in your outward life, in the form of good conditions. Control your soul forces, and you will be able to shape your outward life as you will. The difference between a savior and a sinner is this, that the one has a perfect control of all the forces within him. The other is dominated and controlled by them. Dwell in thought upon the grandest, and the grandest you shall see. Fix your mind upon the highest, and the highest you shall be. What we sow, that shall we also reap. Some men seem to think this law applies only to outward acts, and relates only to the sowing in a physical world. But the same law governs mind and thought. Thoughts of revenge, hatred, jealousy, envy, and lust affect and mold the character and lives of those who harbor them, as certainly as effect follows cause. Sooner or later, they will be externalized and manifested in every outward circumstance and condition of life. Thoughts generate health or toxins in the system, according to the kind of thought entertained. Thoughts of malice, fear, hatred, and envy interfere with the normal functions of the body, affect its secretions, generate poisons, resulting in disease. Thoughts of health, thoughts of joy, thoughts of kindness bring joy and health to him who entertains them and sends them forth. If we think ourselves inherently bad, we shall reap the fruits of that thought. If we conceive of ourselves as weak and unworthy, as Whitman said, asking leave to be, we shall develop those qualities and actualize them in our daily lives. If we recognize divine attributes as our inheritance, we shall grow into the likeness of those attributes. Whitman said, I believe in you, my soul. The other I am must not abase itself to you. To me, the converging objects of the universe perpetually flow. It is the man of conscious power within that wins in life's contest. He is great because his thought was first great. The man who is conscious of the potentialities of his own nature and couples energy with that thought is master of circumstances. He is the magnet that attracts power, attracts success. He is success. A man may have a lofty opinion of himself, but as long as he thinks small thoughts, he will be small. Man can only become great as he thinks great thoughts. Greatness is strength, 
without egotism. It is power, with a desire that others shall not recognize that power. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He did not employ the term meekness as the synonym of weakness. His thought was that man should be great without parading it, without ostentation, strong without letting it be known. This is the essence of all greatness. By the law of suggestion, the subconscious mind is amenable to the thoughts and impressions it perceives from the conscious or objective mind. The subconscious registers the impression which is again given expression in the life and character of the individual. The subconscious faithfully reproduces every mental idea or state contained in the impression. The law is as unerring as the law of gravitation. As is the suggestion, so is the result. The subconscious is a rich soil, and the seed thought planted therein by the conscious mind will produce according to its kind. If we plant flowers, we shall pluck flowers. If we sow tares, the crop will be tares. The subconscious is an obedient servant. It obeys the thoughts of the conscious mind. What it receives, it reproduces, and its effect is manifested in the personality of the individual. If we sow ideas of diseases, we shall reap a harvest of disease. Thoughts of health will be re-expressed in healthful conditions. If we sow ideas of poverty, that will be our portion. If we sow thoughts of inferiority, weakness, and fear, we shall build a personality devoid of character and strength. Ideals of abundance will produce abundance if we plus them with intelligence and energy. In that valuable little volume, The Great Within, Mr. Christian D. Larson has stated the law well and correctly. The subconscious mind is a rich mental field. Every conscious impression is a seed sown in the field and will bear fruit after its kind, be the seed good, bad, or otherwise. All thoughts of conviction and deeply felt desires will impress themselves upon the subconscious and will produce their kind, to be later expressed in the personal being of man. Since the subconscious is impressed with every earnest and deeply felt thought, it is easy to understand how beliefs stamped upon youthful minds are perpetuated in adult age, whether they are true or false. The subjective mind receives them in an impressionable age, and there they remain and grow throughout the years of life. Certain institutions understand the psychological law perfectly and therefore insist on what they call religious instruction in early life. Before they encounter any opposition from autosuggestion or independent thought, the religious instruction usually consists of teaching certain creeds and dogmas, and in most instances playing upon the emotions to cause their teachings to be impressed upon the subconscious. Fear has been the favorite influence to cause these impressions to become permanent in the subconscious. These impressions, being ground into the subjective mind, remain to bring forth fruit after their kind in the succeeding years. It is no evidence of their truth that they remain as fixed belief in mature age. Men believe what was impressed on the subconscious mind in early life, because that belief has become so firmly planted therein that it becomes a habit. Habits thus formed in childhood prevent the mind from accepting any line of thought that does not accord with those habits or beliefs. They are accepted as fundamentals, and logic and reason are powerless to overcome them. Yet these habits and beliefs, however firm or fixed they may become, may or may not be true. That they are thus believed in mature life by men of the highest intellectuality is no evidence of their truth. Men of greatest mental attainments differ as widely in their religious beliefs as the opposite poles of the universe. They cannot all be true. The question is asked, 
why do intelligent men differ so radically? The explanation lies in a study of psychological law, that the subconscious mind is so thoroughly impressed in childhood that the impression is never eradicated, but remains a fixed and permanent habit and belief through life. Men are compelled to believe as they do by reason of the deep impression on the subconscious mind. These impressions are so strong that they color and warp everything that enters into the mind thereafter, even education itself. Thus, education and training become merely servants of our earlier beliefs. Then, too, ecclesiastical authorities and ecclesiastical reverence are important factors in silencing youthful minds from questioning what they are told. They are taught that they must accept the instruction given as the final commands of authority, and to make further inquiries would tempt the divine patience. These become deep and lasting impressions on the subconscious mind, the tendencies of which are to preclude further inquiries in later years. As long as the world continues to cling to the idea that some men are clothed with exclusive authority to teach truth, or that their authority cannot be questioned, so long will they be able to fasten beliefs upon the human mind that reason and judgment cannot dislodge or eradicate. So long as the child is taught that it is dangerous to think, except as his spiritual advisors tell him, and that he must accept their interpretation of what has been written, so long will he refuse to see or accept truth, or enlarge his conceptions of truth. Whatever his intellectual attainments may be, he is likely to remain a spiritual slave. Mr. Larson has well said, When you accept anything as final, you bring your mind to a standstill in that sphere of action. And the fact that nearly the whole world has accepted certain spiritual ideas as final is the reason why spirituality, real living spirituality, is almost unknown today. The conscious mind supplies the ideals for the subconscious mind to work to and bring forth into expression. This is a subject for the deepest thought and consideration and is the key to all true mental training. As is the ideal, so will be the expression. It is of the utmost importance that proper and truthful ideals be always held before the subconscious. For whatever they are, they will find expression in the life, character, and personality of the individual. Constructive thoughts are the only thoughts worthwhile. They alone build. Negative thoughts bring confusion and destruction. One of the useful lessons for man is so far to master himself that he can rise above such negative thoughts as fear, malice, hatred, envy, revenge, and thoughts of similar character. Such thoughts react on the individual sending them forth and unfit him for the useful and constructive work of life. They destroy health, they waste force, they remove energy and disqualify man for the accomplishment of real and valuable results. They impress the subconscious with their disturbing effects, to be again reproduced and their bitter fruits garnered by the individual. The great lesson for man to learn is that negative thoughts as malice, envy, and hatred do not injure or affect the person against whom they are sent so much as the one who gives them wings and sends them forth. Giving and receiving is the work of life. What we give, that we receive. This law holds good in all we give, whether we send forth thoughts to another or to our own subjective minds. They come back, either as benedictions or otherwise, according to the character of the thoughts sent forth. Too long has the world been taught that Poverty was the mark of virtue and moral worth. The Church has failed to create ideals of better things and to awaken that true consciousness in men, of their own powers, to lead them to a life of prosperity. They have been told that the poor we should always have with us. The charity extended has only been for immediate relief. They have not inspired the desire and determination for better things 
in those to whom they have extended charity. True charity is to cause the individual to find himself, that he may supply his own wants and rise to thrift and prosperity. It has been a favorite theme of the theologians to dwell on the poverty of Jesus. Every circumstance and event in his life have been emphasized to show that Jesus was poor and had not where to lay his head. They said Jesus was the friend of the poor because he was himself poor. It is true that he was the friend of the poor. He healed them and ministered to their wants without price. But he was the friend of more than the poor. He was the friend of all men and saw in every man a brother. How little they reckon of the wealth and resources of Jesus, whom they called poor. He was not poor. Nature's storehouse stood open before him. He whom the winds and waves obeyed. He who fed the multitudes with a few loaves and fishes. He who brought cheer and gladness to the wedding feast. When the conscious water looked up on her Lord and blushed, was not poor. Plenty and abundance were his without the asking. Precious ointments anointed his body. Costly robes adorned his person. The wealth of the universe was his to use. His outstretched hand was always filled. He used what he needed. He had no use for more. He did not discourage human labor and effort, but encouraged industry in all his teachings. By his incomparable parables, he praised and commanded the industrious and thrifty servants and condemned the slothful. He looked upon work as the normal business and function of man. He read aright the analogies of nature, that all is work. The Father works, and I work. Nature works, and man works. He taught man to work, and also to have faith and confidence in results that he would garner where he had sown. When Jesus told his listeners to take no thought of the morrow, he did not intimate that they should neglect the duties and work of today. His message was not to cease from work, but to forget anxiety. The sparrows work unceasingly, and so should man. But why worry about the rewards and the future? His message to man was to work with a purpose, and trust to the infinite power of all for the just rewards and fruits of his toil. The Last Chance New Thought presents a religion of life, and that the best preparation for the continued existence of the soul after the last great change is a life worthwhile here. This has been the message of the masters of thought in all ages. Nothing in man's life is higher than duty. Nothing is more ennobling than service. Nothing diviner than an unselfish life. The consciousness of such a life is the best asset to carry over the last great divide. The discipline thereby experienced will best fit the soul for the enjoyment of greater and better things. A religion of works brings peace to the soul, which it will have and enjoy when the last day is ended and the worlds lie dead. St. James believed in a religion of works. With him, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. New Thought believes that the practice of such a religion is the best preparation for the soul's eternal enjoyment. The theologian has said that a particular belief is necessary for a man's future happiness and of more importance than an upright and worthy life. At times we have been told that the omission of certain ordinances, such as that of baptism and ceremonials, or the failure to hold a registered membership in certain institutions, were fatal to man's eternal happiness. But since men in modern times claim the right of exercising reason regarding religious and ultimate questions, these medieval opinions no longer disturb their peace of mind. Thoughtful men no longer conceive of God as other than just. They cannot understand that God would punish a being, created in his own image, for the failure to exercise a particular mental conclusion. They do not believe that God is less just than man. 
Jesus said, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. It will be observed that the word doeth is the key to his thought. In all history, no great teacher laid more emphasis on duty and conduct than the man of Galilee. None have been heard who spoke less of belief. What makes a character? Is it a particular belief? It is living a life, a life useful, constructive, and unselfish. Character is not quickly formed, but it will determine our future status and welfare. We are living in eternity now. We are making life a hell or a heaven as we live it here. Have we any other reason to believe it will be otherwise in another state of existence? Man is an evolving being, growing, striving, and moving onward toward the perfect man. But it is unthinkable that he should become perfect in an instant, or otherwise than by the slow processes of growth and evolution. We shall enter the portals of our next state of existence, no better or worse than we live here. If we have not built character here, we shall not have it there. If we have not lived in harmony with God here, we shall not be in harmony with Him there. Unless our souls are fitted for enjoyment here, they will find none elsewhere. Fear Fear has no abiding place in the philosophy of new thought. New thought would eliminate it from man's mind and thus make him free. While fear controls, man cannot be free. Religious institutions, through fifteen centuries or more, have ruled their followers mainly through the influence of fear and are still wielding that mighty and potent weapon. Fear has been the enemy of man in all ages. Fear has enslaved the individual to institutions. The soul withers and pines before its blighting influence. Fear has displaced man's will and made him obedient to the wills of others. It has made man a spiritual peon, dependent on others for light and guidance. It has drawn the curtain of ignorance and superstition between man and God. What has man to fear but himself? As man is what he thinks, he has nothing to fear but his thoughts. If man has done wrong, it is because his thought was first wrong. You have been told to implore God for the forgiveness of your sins and that they should all be blotted out. What about yourself? Suppose God should forget and wipe away your iniquities. Does that help you to forgive yourself? Think back over the years of your life and see if you cannot find some spoken word or neglected kindness to those who have gone to their long rest that you would give your wealth to blot from memory. As Victor Hugo said, one can no more prevent the mind from returning to an idea than the sea from returning to the shore. In the case of the sailor, it is called the tide. In the case of the guilty, it is called remorse. God upheaves the soul as well as the ocean. If we violate no laws, we pay no penalties. If we break them, we suffer the just consequences of our acts. What a travesty on religion, that man can be made to believe that someone stands between him and God. If we are punished, we punish ourselves. If we are rewarded, we reward ourselves. I am the captain of my soul. Happiness New thought is the philosophy of joy and happiness. Happiness is indispensable to a life of the highest accomplishments, and to the normal and symmetrical development of man. Much of the theology of the world has been too somber to admit of much happiness in man's life. It has not looked upon happiness as conducive to spiritual and religious growth. Man was regarded as weak and unable of himself to create a happy or joyful mental state or condition. To the theologian, Happiness was not a necessity or an indispensable condition in man's life. He knew nothing of the effect of happiness on health and physical development. Happiness was looked upon rather as the offspring and effect of evil and sinister forces. The religious face revealed sadness rather than joy.
Even the religious garb disclosed a sad tone to man's life and personality. Modern psychology has given happiness a new place in man's life. The effect of a happy mental state on health is now so well understood that its discussion is unnecessary. The poisonous toxins produced by fear, anger, and similar conditions of mind are likewise well understood. Modern psychology has revealed the fact that happiness is a quality susceptible of growth and can become a habit by each individual, creating cheerful states of mind. It can be cultivated as any other art or accomplishment. Its growth depends on the individual and the power of his will. A strong will can produce cheerful states of mind, just as a weak will can be productive of morose mental states. Cheerful attitudes of mind are constructive. The opposites are destructive. Cheerful mental states do not depend upon external circumstances. Happiness, as before stated, comes from within. As cheerful mental attitudes produce health, they increase the power of every function and talent in man. They illumine the mind. They enlarge the understanding. They widen the soul's vision. They send a current of life and health through the body. They bring joy, strength, and character to the individual. Walt Whitman found good fortune in himself. Afoot and light-hearted, I take the open road. Healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me, leading wherever I choose. Henceforth, I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. New Thought and Modern Problems The principles enunciated in New Thought have never been tried in the solution of the social and economic problems that constantly confront society. After all the centuries of theological teaching, the world is still divided by contentions and disagreements. Men are still separated by antagonisms and dissensions, each individual and class seeking to take advantage of the other. Selfishness still dominates man. Man's hand is still raised against his fellow man. If it is not individual against individual, it is organization against organization, class against class. Labor is arrayed in fierce warfare against capital, and capital against labor. Labor is in antagonism also with itself. Public servants are still dishonest. The briber still plies his trade. The grafter is abroad in the land. It is lamentable that these conditions should exist in this twentieth century. There must be a cause. There is a cause for every effect. Conditions can only be changed as the cause is changed. True reform is centered at the cause. The old teaching has not brought the golden era so long desired. Men will do right when they understand that no other course will pay. They will cease to do wrong when they know that every wrong they perpetrate will recoil on their own heads. In other words, when the law of cause and effect, and whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, is understood and so thoroughly impressed upon man's minds that they dare not ignore it. We may confidently look for the dawn of a new and greater era. When men fully appreciate that for every wrong they commit they punish themselves, that for every unworthy act there is a swift and relentless punishment. The restraining influence of this teaching must have a beneficial and permanent influence on their lives and characters. But, someone says, is not this maxim old, that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap? And has it not always been taught? Yes, in a way, but at the same time, and with far more emphasis, the theological doctrine has been impressed on man's mind that he may escape this law and all its effects and consequences if he will but entertain a certain belief and conform to certain rules. The whole theological doctrine is subversive of this law, and present-day society is reaping the results. When the laborer learns that every time he cheats in his work, he is cheating himself, that every time he robs his employer, he is robbing himself, that every act of cruelty he inflicts upon his fellow man, he inflicts upon himself and all other men. 
that every malicious thought he sends forth will return to torment himself. He will get rid of the distrust and hatred that now control his life. He will then entertain a different attitude toward his fellow man. When the employer learns this lesson and understands its full import, he will profit in like manner. When he fully realizes that whenever he oppresses and enslaves the employee, he oppresses and enslaves himself. That he is under the dominion of the same inexorable law, he will deal fairly, justly, and kindly with him. Following the trend of past teaching, we have been looking for the bad in men so long that we have forgotten to seek the good. We operate upon the principle of mistrust rather than trust we reap what is due, a harvest of contentions and strife. Emerson says, But because of the dual constitution of all things, in labor as in life, there can be no cheating. The thief steals from himself. The swindler swindles himself. Human labor through all its forms, from sharpening of the stake to the constitution of a city or an epoch, is one immense illustration of the perfect compensation of the universe. Everywhere and always, this law is sublime. I say, says Carlyle, there is not a red Indian hunting by Lake Winnipeg can quarrel with his squaw, but the whole world must smart for it. Will not the price of beaver rise? It is a mathematical fact that the casting of this pebble from my hand alters the center of gravity of the universe. We might beg to suggest that even religious organizations might well profit from the, by the observance of these principles. Even the followers of the Prince of Peace are not at peace. It is creed against creed, dogma against dogma, and doctrine against doctrine. Instead of a display of love, it is an exhibition of contempt and hatred. They find fault with the followers of one religion because of an act said to have been committed 1900 years ago, which nevertheless theologians said was preordained of God from the beginning of the world. Yet. They still hate the Jews. They filled the Jews' head with the egotistical thought that the Jews were God's chosen people. They so declared because they had read it in a book written by the Jews about themselves. Think of the proposition that God would pick out a little handful of people and heap his favors on them and ignore the other races of the world. Greece with her heroes, her scholars, her artists, her love of beauty her greatness, could not be considered with the chosen race. Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and others were not among the elect. The Jew alone was God's favorite. Then, because they also read that a small mob of Jews crucified Jesus on a charge of heresy, for fifteen centuries they have kicked and cuffed the Jew over Christendom, have driven him out of Christian countries, confiscated his property, penned him up in ghettos, deprived him of civil or religious rights, murdered him, all under the banner of the cross, and still they dislike the Jew. If the Jew has any disagreeable qualities, who made them? The Jew or the Christian? The Jew is what the Christian has made him. They still condemn the Jew for the one act of the mob. Why? If Jesus had not been crucified, there would never have been a Christian religion. Is it not time the Christian world should take off its hat and apologize to the Jew? One claims to be the church of authority, the others deny it. Each one is sure it is right, and the others are all wrong. Worshipping the same being, they refuse to worship together. They tolerate each other outwardly, only because the law compels it. Where the law does not compel it, we see one Christian nation with church and state united, driving out and murdering the descendants of the nation which gave them their sacred book. The want of harmony and these uncharitable opinions must continue to exist so long as men conceive of God as separated from man and dwelling in some distant part of the universe. As long as men entertain such ideas of God, they will differ and quarrel as to those who were his chosen vice-regents, 
and ambassadors to carry out his plans and transmit his orders and desires to men. These institutions seem never to have grasped the great truth that the same hatred, ill will, and malice they send forth will return to themselves with undiminished force, that if they sow hatred, they will reap hatred. Thus the yawning gulf of hatred and exclusiveness is never closed. The law of Jesus is forgotten. The law of hatred supplants it. Alas, how much of life is lost! How much is black and bitter with the frost that might be sweet with the sweet sun, if men could only know that they are one! New Thought and Individualism New thought speaks to man as an individual and always proclaims an intense and robust individualism. Man can be normally and fully developed only as individuals and not as a class or a member of an institution. The individual is the unit from which all greatness springs. New thought ranks the individual above institutions, as all masters of thought have done. Institutions are made by human units and are the product of individual thought. They are no greater than their creators. Jesus spoke to individuals and not to churches or institutions. The advocates of this teaching recognize no spiritual authority save the voice of the soul, speaking to each individual. Each soul can interpret aright the oracles of truth. They speak by intuition to each soul. No other can convey that meaning to us. He that has found the light within and has felt the promptings of his own soul asks no authority how he shall worship God. His knees bend only at the command of his own manly soul. The reliance on authority means the decline of religion, the withdrawal of the soul. The soul is no follower. It knows its own way, as the bird knows its course. It follows its own light. Unerringly, it reaches up toward the divine. Now, new thought is a philosophy of the living, a religion for today. It does not dwell in the past. It leaves its yesterdays behind as it advances to its work of today. The present is the time of opportunity, of action. The past holds memories and reflections only. The past was not perfect. The golden age is yet to be. The world is steadily converging toward that one divine event. Every constructive life brings it nearer. Life is not enriched and nourished by regrets and lamentations over the lapses and faults of life. There is nothing constructive or upbuilding in such thoughts. They sap the energies of the mind and unfit man for the highest duty and expression for today. If we indulge the memory, let it rest only on the beautiful and cheerful spots of the past. Life is a series of experiences. We must look upon each as necessary to bring us to our present state of development. If any had been lacking, we should probably have been different now. Each experience teaches a lesson. Each speaks words of wisdom and truth to him who listens. They build up or tear down character, according as we read the lessons they impart. If we interpret them aright, they bring understanding and strength. It brings neither peace nor strength to brood and worry over the mistakes we have made. We cannot recall them. They belong to the past, we to the present. Let us accept their lessons, forget them if we can, and turn our faces toward the rising sun. Each morning is the beginning of a new life, the exhilaration of hope newly born. Each evening bespeaks the dawn of a new day, sparingly at least. Let us exercise charity toward ourselves. At times, if we can, let us blot out some of our iniquities and remember them no more. Let us remember the past only to profit by its experiences in the work of today. New Thought believes in a sound and glorified body as the only fit habitation for the indwelling soul. It teaches that health is man's normal condition and that he is equipped for the real work of life only as he possesses a healthy body. That all disease and sickness are the results 
of consciously or unconsciously violated law. Herbert Spencer said that the time would come when it would be as disgraceful to be found sick as to be found drunk. Nature is constructive. Nature is harmony. The soul cannot properly manifest itself or find harmonious expression, except in a healthy body. I have said that the soul is not more than the body, and I have said the body is not more than the soul, says Walt Whitman. Carlyle says, There is but one temple in the universe, and that is the body of man. Nothing is holier than that high form. We are the miracle of miracles, the great indescribable mystery of God. We are each the center of our universe, from which we look forth to study and contemplate the indescribable works of God. We are equally as mysterious and as little understood as the universe itself, with its systems of worlds and planets circling through the stretches of infinity. Ever the soul reaches out and asks for freedom. It looks forth from the narrow and grated windows of sense, upon the wide, immeasurable creation, It knows that around it and beyond it lie outstretched the infinite and everlasting paths. Victor Hugo says, There is one spectacle grander than the sea, that is the sky. There is one spectacle grander than the sky, that is the interior of the soul. Each of us is a symbol of God, an epitome of the universe. As the old knight said, Let the universe be to thee no more than the reflection of thine own heroic soul. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to hear more of The Message of New Thought, just search Audible or iTunes or Amazon for the Kindle and print editions. I'll put links in the episode description. And again, please follow, subscribe, give five stars, or let me know in any way that you enjoyed your trip.